breaker one, breaker one might be crazy, but I ain't dumb. Crazy cooter coming at you. Hey, fast line, fast track. Y'all got your ears on out there? John Deere to New Holland. Just look at the load I'm hauling. Hard work, I hit it harder. Ain't nothing new for a backwoods farmer. Sun up to sundown, backing up traffic all the way to town. Camo hat and a farmer's tan. Welcome to Fast Line Fast Track, presented by Fast Line Media Group, your innovative consumer resource and marketing partner of choice for the evolving agricultural community. Now, here's your host, Brent Adams. Well, welcome to another episode of Fast Line Fast Track, presented by the new FastLine.com. It's great to have you with us. This week, we talk spring corn and soybean planting preparations with DeKalb Asgro agronomist Andrew Penny and Harmon Wiltz. We hear about Catherine Tai's confirmation as U.S. trade representative and another China corn purchase. Jesse Allen has a market talk update, and the hot rod farmer Ray Bohax has another installment of Bushels and Cents. And we hear the music of rising country music star Cameron Dubois. You won't want to miss a moment of this one. Let's go. Well, first up this week on Fast Line Fast Track, planting season is upon us, and the first step toward a desirable yield is doing the little things right during planting season to get the seed in the right place and give it the optimal chance for emergence. So today I wanted to bring in Andrew Penny, a technical agronomist with Decalb Corn and also with Asgrow, to discuss some key factors you should be paying attention to when you head out into the field. And Andrew, welcome into Fast Line Fast Track. Hey, thanks for having me. So farmers in many parts of the country are preparing to load up their planters and get that seed into the ground. But as they're doing that, what should they be aware of? There Are there common mistakes there that folks make that sabotage them before they even get started planting? Yeah, you know, uh, I think some of the, the more common uh, problems that people face early, early in the planting season, um, you know, is, is kind of picking those hybrids and varieties, uh, especially, you know, corn hybrids that, that can really tolerate the early planting. You know, genetics has a, has a huge impact on, on what can be planted early and, and really tolerate those cold, wet soils. And then, and then, you know, it's also important to match seed treatment so that we can uh, manage any of those diseases that like to set in uh, in those cold, wet conditions. And so, you know, I think I think with that, uh, we experienced kind of a rough year uh, with 2020, and we, we had drier conditions at, at planting in 2020 as well, and that's something that's kind of carried over into 2021. Uh, there's, there's a lot of states that, you know, are a little bit drier than normal. And so, uh, you know, I would definitely recommend, uh, especially if you're running that cultivator through just, just before planting, you know, definitely go out and check that soil, that soil moisture, you know, and, and if that soil, that soil seems really fluffy, uh, you know, and loose, you know, maybe think about planting it at two and a half versus that, that normal two inches in corn, you know, just so that when that first rain does, does happen, you know, and that soil settles. We're not we're not ending up with shallow planting seeds that can that can uh, you know continue to to impact yield and, and plant growth and development throughout the growing season. Well, you talk about the soil moisture and the soil temperature and so forth. We should mention that if growers head to the Decalb website, there's a great blog post that was just put up in the last week regarding considerations for corn stand establishment, and that's a must-read before hitting the field. Among those factors discussed are soil temperature, tillage, compaction, starter fertilizers, and anhydrous ammonia, as well as planting depth and speed, and all that can be found at decalb.com. Uh, so make sure you go and check that out. One of the other things I wanted to talk about here is corn spacing for a moment, because I know this is one that differs from farm to farm. 
but I know this is one yep. that many growers constantly look at, and they should because there's a year-to-year variability there that could affect yield. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean that's something that there's been a lot of research done in, in both corn and soybeans looking at, you know, not only row spacing, you know, 20, 15 inches, 20 inches versus 30 inches, but also, you know, the importance of that nice picket, picket fence type stand uh, when you're trying to establish those corn seasons. And, you know, these are things that can have direct impact on, on plant growth and development and, and also yield. So, you know, it, it's very important to, you know, monitor each individual field when you're out planting and, and send it, setting all, you know, having, having all those planter settings set correctly. Um, and, and trying, like I said, just, just trying to establish that nice picket fence type uh, stand. Mm-hmm. And uh, to go just a little bit deeper on that, I know there's been a lot of research done between uh, 20 inches and, and 30 inches and uh, e- even twin rows in thir- 30 and 38 inches. What What is the data showing us today in terms of optimum spacing for maximum yield? You know, I, I've seen a lot of research go both ways. You know, uh, around here we deal a lot with 20 inch and 30 inch rows. I would say that's definitely the most common uh, throughout most of the, the corn belt. Um, and, and so I think it really comes down to knowing, knowing your hybrids, um, but also knowing where your planting populations in yield potential um, are, 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 you know, best set. So, you know, if, if you're in a really high, high producing field uh, where you have, you know, consistent yields across multiple years, you know, maybe, maybe you can, you can, you know, stand a little bit higher populations. And so, you know, I think long term as we continue to increase our populations, you know, there may be a point where more people move to 20 inches just so we can squeeze more plants per acre, um, you know, in, in, into that area. So, so I think it really comes down to to an individual grower in, in individual fields. But you know, for, for the most part, you know, we're we're still in a, a, a situation with 30 inch rows. We're still able to maximize yield. So now we have the planter loaded and ready to go, and we've determined our row width, and we're ready to get out in the field. What do growers need to consider when they might feel compelled to get in a big hurry, maybe out in front of a weather event, or they're just anxious to get the job done? Because I know that's something uh, that, that could ultimately have some adverse effects if done incorrectly. Yeah, and, and that's something too that you know if, if we're planting early. Um, that, that may be more of an issue, you know, if, if we're at, at 50 degree soil temperature and, and climbing, you know, uh, that may not be as big of an issue, but if, if we're expecting, uh, you know, maybe temperatures to cool off a little and, and there's a rain in the forecast within that 24 to 48 hours after, you know, the potential planting date, that might be a concern because, you know, seeds have to absorb moisture to germinate. And if they absorb cold, uh, cold moisture, cold rain, um, that, that could impact uh, that, you know, that seed germination. And so um, e- even if temperatures are a little bit warmer and in, in you're out planting and there's, uh, you know, maybe a, a heavy rain uh, in the forecast, that can cause soil crushing. And so, it, 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 you know, it's pretty important to be uh, cognizant of, of, the, of the forecast. You know, what's the temperature going to do? Is, is it going to go up or down? Uh, where are the current soil temperatures at? And is there any heavy rain uh, in, in the forecast? In, in all of this, you know, can, you know, I always tell people planting is probably the most important thing or is the most important thing you're going to do all year because, you know, if it's done right or wrong, it's kind of the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah. And so just, just being aware of, of the weather forecast and, and where your current uh, temperatures are 
make a huge impact the rest of the growing season. So once we get that seed in the ground and hopefully have given it the ideal seed bed, we need to start thinking about some of the yield robbing factors such as disease and pest management. Uh, what are some of the considerations growers should make to give these corn plants the best possible chance of making it across the finish line? Yeah, so I, I think the biggest thing that you can you can do is, is the, the right um, hybrid selection. And so, you know, just being aware of the natural occurring genetic resistance that, that is available in, in hybrids. And so, like DeKalb in, in bear products, for example, um, you know, we have uh, disease-shield corn. And so that's just, you know, specific hybrids that have natural, natural genetic resistance to many of the key diseases that growers across the Midwest have, you know, like anthracnose, stock rot, gossip world, gray leaf spot, uh, northern corn leaf white, and southern rust. And so, um, you know, knowing that and, and knowing the, the, the impact that the environment can play yeah, all, all in, in what diseases are common in your area will all help, uh, you know, maintain yield uh, across the entire year. And then if you are in a situation where you, you have a hybrid that is susceptible, you know, that there's always fungicides. And so, you know, I think one of the, the newer diseases that a lot of people are dealing with is tar spot. And so, you know, our, our new Delara Complete is, is labeled for tar spot. And so, you know, dealing with disease, disease like this, where there's you know, a lot of, you know, we're still working on, on the, the products that would be best for natural uh, genetic resistance. We always have uh, a fungicide that can help manage fungal diseases. When I wanted to get into that a little bit, let's talk seed treatment, fungicides, and foliar fungicides. Why are they important, and when should growers apply them? Yeah, so, so seed treatments are, are, are something that's very critical, um, you know, especially, as, as, as again, as we, as we plant earlier. Um, you know, any, anytime we're dealing with cool, cool soils or even just warm and wet soils, you know, there, there's going to be certain uh, fungal pathogens that, that like to invade our, our plants, and so... That, that kind of continues as we, you know, uh, start talking uh, later in reproductive development for, for both corn and soybeans. You know, if, if we're in hot, warm, uh, humid conditions or even just wet conditions, there's going to be fungal diseases like to, um, you know, uh, attack certain crop species and, and plants. And so um, I mentioned a few of the key diseases that we commonly deal with uh, here across the Midwest. And so, you know, uh, I think the most important thing is just, just understand the disease triangle, how it works. You know, know that you need a, the host, the pathogen, in, in the right environment. And if we are in the right environment, you know, where we are, are getting uh, adequate rain, we have uh, moderate temperatures, um, and, and knowing the diseases that will impact uh, the you know corn and soybeans in your area, then you can you can match uh, the fungicide application time to get that. Um, but you know, the most consistent response is, is definitely at tapping. When you talk about the environment, well, one more topic I wanted to make sure that we cover before we get out of here, and we just kind of alluded to it a little bit earlier, is that of heat and drought-related stress to the plants. I know it's expected that some areas of the country could be facing drought conditions this season. What are some steps that growers can take, especially when irrigation isn't an option, to achieve maximum yield in the conditions that they're dealt? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, you know, again, I think that's something that a lot of people are going to face this year. Um, obviously, we don't know what, what Mother Nature is going to give us for 2021, but we do know we're starting dry in, in a lot of areas. And so I think I think the best thing that we can do right now is, is maybe plan for the worst, hope for the best. Um, and, you know, take advantage of, of what your, your technical agronomist and rep knows about um, all, all of, all of the, the corn and soybean products. You know, we do rigorous testing to, to look at the stress tolerance for all of our products. 
And so I think it's important to not only look at high yield potential, but also match, you know, those products with high yield potential and, and good stress tolerance. And so we have, we have a number of products that uh, have extremely good drought and, and you know, high heat uh, stress tolerance. And so, you know, just matching that, you know, not, not just looking at yield, but also looking at high yield potential and, and stress tolerance is, is really important going into 2021. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to make sure that before we got out of here, we made mention of the fact that at any point in the process, if growers run into challenges, DCAP has experts that can help them figure it out and even conduct research uh, that's going to help the company engineer even more resilient corn for the future. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that's, that's kind of what, what I look for, right? So I, I love doing this stuff and uh, happy to help anybody and, and talk with anybody about um, you know, what they can do in the future or, or what they can do currently to help uh, you know, maintain yield uh, on their farm. And again, we want to mention that uh, there is just a wealth of agronomic uh, details at decalb.com. If you go under the agronomy tab there, they're putting up new blog posts uh, almost every day, especially here during planting season with some really vital information. So I would encourage you to go check that out. And Andrew, thank you so much for taking the time to join us here this week on Fast Line Fast Track. Hope you'll come back and be our guest again to help us sort out all the factors that go into achieving maximum corn yield yeah it was my pleasure anytime happy to, happy to be here again that was andrew penny and now we want to bring in one of andrew's counterparts this is Harmon wilt a technical agronomist focusing on as grow soybeans and you might remember last week on the show we had on clint chaffer the brand manager with as grow who talked about the extend flex lineup and this week we want to go deeper on the agronomic side of soybean growing so we brought in one of the most knowledgeable guys around Harmon. welcome into fast line fast track Hey, uh, glad to be here and uh, excited to talk about uh, soybeans as we get uh, closer and closer to uh, uh, the planting, full-bore planting season. And I wanted to start out by posing the same question to you that I did to Andrew. What common mistakes do soybean growers make that sabotage them before they even get started with planting? You know, I think there's maybe three or four things that I would kind of point to, and and that is, is really being ready when the field is ready. So we want to be, you know, uh, when the field is ready, and what that means is that it's not too wet, it's not too damp, we're not going to get compaction. Our goal really is, is looking at good seed-to-soil contact. Uh, on the other side of the spectrum of the field being ready is if it's too dry. If we've, uh, you know, the wind is blowing too much and we've worked the field too far ahead of time, it's too dry. So ideally, we want that little seed, that soybean seed, to be uh, have really good seed-to-soil contact and good moisture, and uh, it'll take off and get going. So I would say either not being quite ready or being in the field a little bit too quick is what I would tend to see gives up probably the most amount of yield. A uh, lot of other factors, but I would probably say that would be the big one. When you talk about that soybean seed, let's start out by talking about selecting a soybean seed that is right for a farm's conditions. What questions, if they haven't already been asking, should growers be asking? You know, I think that's a really good uh, discussion there. Of, you know, it really one of the key factors is uh, weather is the first, the second one is the varieties that we're selecting. So some of the things I really look at is matching up, knowing your field, what is important in your field, no matter where you live in the U.S., uh, knowing that field. Do I have heavy clays that, that phytophthora is a big, big issue? Do I have sudden death issues? Do I have just nematode uh, issues? Um, and do I have white mold, some of those white mold diseases? Um, I think, number one, that's probably the big biggest thing is knowing your field. 
the other piece around that is weeds. What kind of weeds do I have? So then knowing that in your field, as most growers do, um, we just go down the list and say, what is the most important thing? And if it's white mold in that field, uh, if we got a lot, you know, if that's our big, big issue, really um, putting the most emphasis in selecting that variety that really is got the best white mold tolerance that fits your maturity is, is really best. If it's, um, you've got some really heavy clay soils that are wet um, and, and poorly drained, you know, and those soils are number one issue really is going to be around phytophthora. So being able to pick that variety that really gives us the best phytophthora strength. So I think knowing your field is really critical and then, you know, selecting the variety that fits the best need in there. Um, at Asbro, what we're trying to do is really bring varieties that need a wide range. Um, in other words, that will have Phytophthora, that will have the 15 in it, that will have um, good white mold coverage, good sudden death, and uh, give you an option of, you know, good weed control, too. So that is our goal, but, uh, you know, there's never a perfect gene, so a grower has to kind of pick and choose some. But I think, uh, to me, clearly knowing your field, what issues you've had in the past to, to uh, try to eliminate that gives you the best opportunity to kind of maximize yield, especially here when we got good uh, good prices. Well, one of the f- topics that we focused on here on the show a couple of weeks ago is that of weed control, which is something that I know dogs, many producers, and one of the products Asgro has out there is ExtendFlex, which Clint talked about here on the show last week. It's marketed as the industry's first triple-stacked soybean trait containing tolerance to dicamba, glyphosate, and also glufosinate, why should growers consider ExtendFlex? Well, you know, I think the probably the term water hemp and palmer, some of those weeds that are very prolific all year long, that uh, we need to have more tools in the toolbox. You know, we can put a good free out there, but we need some tools that almost any time during the season we can go out and are going to do well with uh, controlling water hemp and palmer. And uh, so I think um, I've had a chance to work with it since 2008 and uh, a lot more the last five years. The first time we had it was 2008. And I think just the power of the, uh, the extend flex to actually kill the toughest weeds out there around the water hemp uh, is critical. Having the ability then to come back later when we need to to clean up some random plants in the field more with the uh, glufosinate, the Liberty piece, I think is, is a very important late season. So as I see this whole thing, what it does uh, is give us an opportunity as growers to really have a clean field all year long. So I really like to use the Extendamax uh, and tank mix with a product like Warrant early so we don't really have weeds coming up and then we come back, um, uh, you know, and uh, we drop on the Extendamax in the post side of things and then cleaned up with the, the Liberty piece. So I think if you look at, we know yields are rot, we, we lose yields from weed control. Um, we've got to keep the crop safe. There's some other products you can use, but then you start getting into crop injury and soybeans and not necessarily the best weed control. So if we want to maximize yield, really we don't want to have weeds in the field um, at this point in time. So being able to, to eliminate them when they're one and two inches tall, uh, four inches max, uh, is kind of key, that flexibility. Our weeds are adapting to our older herbicides, so we've got to kind of stay on that cutting edge so that we can have uh, clean fields. And, uh, you know, once you let a weed go to the seed, guess what? It also then is kind of giving you potential for weed resistance down the road. So not only 
trying to control the weeds uh, in 2021, but trying to manage resistance long term. Hence why we uh, need the flexibility with this new tool of uh, the Asbro Extend Flex uh, to uh, really be able to do, do that, not only keep good field clean this year and have maximum yield, but kind of manage that resistance long term. Well, you mentioned Extendamax, and earlier this month it was announced that Extendamax with Vapor Grip technology received a new five-year registration from the EPA. So for those who are using Extendamax, what do they need to know about the requirements as per the EPA-approved product label? Yeah, I think a couple things. One is uh, uh, right off the bat, the confidence in our science that we have, uh, both in, in developing products and products that are actually um, you know, labeled um, that, hey, that's a, a great process. Yeah, knowing that they have this tool long-term to work with, so it is a technology they can not only use this year, but stay where it's going to be with them, you know, kind of for the longer term at that point. I think one of the biggest things is, is uh, spraying early and scouting the field to know, hey, when do I have those water hemp one and two inches to get back out and, uh, and get them done? So wonderful technology. Um, you know, some other key things for success really is if we can use 15 gallons plus per acre, uh, that gives us the best uh, weed kill that we do with the Extendamax of the uh, vapor rip technology. Having a, uh, the right drop the nozzles, I should say, um, usually utilizing a, a four or a five gives us a, a little bit bigger pattern so it's not drifting off and moving. Um, but yet we're getting um, good control, uh, good, good herbicide to the weed, I think, is really kind of some of the real key things. So like anything, understanding your weed pattern, understanding the product you're using, uh, I'd say those would be some of the key things to look at. And this would be a good time to mention that growers still have a couple of weeks to get in on a variety of free training workshops, including live webinars every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Central through the end of March. And there are self-guided online modules and limited in-person workshops for customers who are unable to connect online. You can find out more information about those at roundupreadyextend.com and that's roundupreadyxtend.com forward slash training. So check those out. And I tell you what, you know, we've selected our seed and we've talked about herbicide. We've got the planter loaded and ready to go. Uh, one thing we only touched on just briefly with Andrew that I wanted to kind of circle back around with you is determining downforce to set a planter and making sure that you achieve proper planter seeding depth. Because as Andrew pointed out, if you don't get the planting part right, the rest of the process becomes just that much more difficult. So what do growers need to consider when determining downforce? Yeah, I think a really good uh, question there, uh, if we've got too much down pressure, we're going to have what we call sidewall compaction, um, and we aren't going to have good emergence and, and so forth. If we don't have enough, that, uh, then you're not going to get good seed-to-soil contact as, as we go. And uh, one of the things I always like to do is um, just get out of the planter and actually turn the gauge wheels. And if I can turn them, but it's a little difficult for me to turn them, I've really got kind of the right amount of down pressure. And if I get out and I'm uh, down there turning the gauge wheels and the planters in the ground, and I can easily move it, that's not enough. But if I can't move them, it's too much. So those are a couple of things you can do. The other thing, you always want to have your hand trowel with you, and uh, just dig up and find those seeds, and you're going to be able to see, do I have good seed-to-soil contact, or did I, uh, do I have some gaps in there? And if I have some air pocket gaps in the soil, 
probably tells me two things. I didn't have it quite firm enough and or the ground might be just a little bit too wet um, as, as we go, go from that perspective. Um, the other thing in the cab, if guys have the opportunity in the cab to be able to adjust the down pressure, we have some wonderful tools that tell them what percent um, that they have uh, pressure downward. But the actual best way is, you know, after you get everything where you think it's set in the cab, with your technology, go out and do those two tests, and that'll really give you a good feel of, am I getting really good feed to throw contact? And then the other thing you mentioned was planting depth. And uh, one of the things that we really want to do is try to have the soybeans in moisture. So if we have every bean in good moisture and good seed to soil contact, we're going to have a pretty uniform stand and we're going to have a chance for it to come up and that's going to maximize yield. So um, every year is a little bit different. You know, really that, that instant a quarter is about ideal to plant soybeans. Um, if we've got to move our residue movers to push a little bit of soil more in really dry years so we can be down just a little bit deeper um, in the soil moisture, that's an okay thing. Um, if we have plenty of moisture, I don't really like to go more than about an inch and a quarter um, uh, of planting depth at that point. There's some real key things that we need to do. It, it all really starts with the sand. When we have a good, even, uniform sand, you know, we can kind of maximize yield And uh, from that aspect. I would probably even argue it's more important to figure out, you know, who's driving the tillage tractor to say, is this the right day? Is this the right hour to be filling the field? Um, and it's a bigger set, right? So we're getting a really good, even, uniform seed bed that's firm um, as well. Well, we had talked about weeds earlier, and, and when growers aren't battling those, uh, they're, they're battling diseases. We talked about uh, uh, white mold a little bit earlier. Any other common diseases that you're seeing growers grapple with, and, and how can they combat those? Yeah, I'd say there's a handful of things there we should discuss a little bit, and that is those early season diseases. And as many of the beans have a phytophthora gene in it, a 1C, 1K, RPS3, which would be, the, would be the best, they really don't kick in until we're in that V1 uh, stage between V1 and V2. So um, in cooler planting early growers or planting early, I think that's where I'm really a big fan of the seed treatment um, that we can put out there. We have a product called Acceleron, and what we do is, we will adjust the different rates of the fungicide in there uh, to get better control for things like Phytophthora and Pythium. So as we have moved the planting date up uh, earlier in soybeans, I think that to me, um, having at least the fungicide piece um, in that mix on the seed treatment is really important, especially on fields that aren't quite as well drained, maybe have a little more water holding the capacity, a little more clay fields. Um, we definitely see not only them plants come out of the ground faster, but they're all healthier too, much more healthier. So I think, you know, that's, that's a big, big one. Uh, a little newer disease, I think the last uh, probably 10 years or so is sudden death syndrome. And that really gets down to two things. One is selecting the right variety for that, um, you know, knowing, scouting, knowing what you've got in your field. And then managing the systematode. We know that when we've got higher systematode levels, it puts more stress on the plant. We tend to get more uh, sudden death uh, syndrome too. So really trying to kind of manage uh, uh, those two diseases. And uh, a lot of that is based on when, you know, when you're selecting the right variety. So those would be some things I think along the disease side, um, early season, late season, we are seeing that if we can keep the, plant, the, the plants greener, longer, healthier, later into the season, we tend to 
um, fill the pods better, less aborting of the pods, pods, fill the pods better, and then we get a thick, bigger uh, bean size too. So uh, utilizing the fungicide kind of in that R3 time frame um, really has helped give our plants a longer, uh, healthier plant later into the season to absorb more of that sunlight to really convert that over to uh, to energy. So those are some things I think that are kind of big as I uh, see in soybean side from the disease perspective that growers uh, have a chance to think about now and take some action. Well, I'll ask you the same thing about pests because they kind of make up that triumvirate of field robbers that, that seem to keep growers on their toes. And I was just listening to a discussion the other day about the grasshoppers' love for soybean plants. What, what are some of the uh, considerations that growers should have when they are crafting a pest management strategy? Yeah, I think it kind of starts uh, at planting. You know, hey, what kind of bugs are going to be down in that soil that are going to be feeding on my little seedlings? That either going to kill that bean plant or not and you know we have grubs down there we have uh, um, you know a number of little bit of insects that, at that point in time that you kind of look at uh, uh, that are going to eat that seedling so you know i think it, to me that's it's about field history and if you've got a history of losing some sands due to uh, bugs eating there then you definitely want to put that insecticide in with the seed treatment to uh, make sure you've kind of got that covered you know, I think a little bit later on, uh, Western bean uh, cutworm is something that, uh, you know, we need to kind of keep an eye on as well uh, from that perspective. The big one um, in the upper Midwest is really uh, aphids, soybean aphids. And you really got a couple of things to look at there. One is if we use the insecticide with the seed treatment, we tend to see about a, a delay in aphids coming into those soybean fields that had an insecticide piece in the seed treatment about two weeks. So... We can really help that push that back. In some cases, we haven't had to spray up in season, uh, but in many cases, we still do, but it pushes that back two weeks, and uh, you don't have as many aphids on the plant. So that's one. The other thing is just really when we get into that time frame, um, we really can reduce yield dramatically if we are not managing the aphids and getting the proper application on at the right time. So pretty quite, quite large. The other path I think that we're tending to see a little bit more of is uh, soybean systematode and uh, really trying to manage systematode even better than what we've done before, uh, picking varieties that have the, the proper gene in them, uh, using a seed uh, treatment as well. There's uh, a couple good ones on the marketplace to kind of help that uh, as we go forward. That had been a pest that had been a big problem. We were able to put in some of the different genes in the plants and uh, um, so I would say of that, of these things, uh, those are some of the things along the way, I think, through the season that a grower should look at to trying to maximize yield and kind of manage those main tests that we do have. And as I did with Andrew earlier, I want to pose this question to you. We've seen predictions for drought conditions in some areas of the country. Specific to soybeans, what can growers do to protect those crops from heat stress and a potential lack of water if they don't have the means to irrigate? Yeah, I think that's a really good discussion, and it does definitely look like we are in a little bit drier pattern. Um, you know, we hope we don't have to be discussing the drought stuff. But I would say the biggest thing in soybeans is, is reducing stress. So anything we can do all year long to reduce the stress so that they have, they're have they in better shape, they have more energy, the plants further along, when they don't, do go through that drought stress time, they'll be able to handle it much, much better. So really, a lot of the things that we kind of touched on, 
early planting, trying to have early planting to get the most vegetative stage and have the plant further along before the drought gets. A little bit of a challenge kind of in soybeans. Is it going to be an early drought or a late drought? Uh, in soybeans, August is the time we really need and want rain to maximize yield. Early in the season, these plants can handle a little bit more. But uh, so some key things, planting early is a big thing. Making sure the bugs aren't feeding on your plants. Making sure you don't have the weed control issues. Fertilizer is one thing that I'm big on. I think we need to be fertilizing soybeans. And if we've got these plants rolling, they have a lot of good fertility, they're fed well, they're healthy, they're going to be able to withstand things a little more. So I would say fertilizing beans is something we need to kind of keep a, a bit more of an eye on um, kind of as, as we go forward. So, um, you know, those are some key factors. The healthier the bean plant is when they go through that stress point, um, the better off that we're going, going to be at that point in time. Um, if you think you have a droughtier year, um, you know, beans tend to shorten up and you lose some nodes. Um, you know, the plant population is something to think about. Um, if we, uh, we think we're going to have a little shorter season, a more droughty season, I would opt to put a few more plants out there. And the reason is our beans are in a droughtier year going to be a little shorter. A few more plants are going to give us a few more nodes to try to maintain that yield. Um, we don't want to go extreme because plants do take uh, moisture as well, but uh, upping that population, um, you know, somewhere in that 5% range will give you just a few more ponds in the field. So, uh, again, anything we can do to keep that plant healthier um, throughout the season as we get into that stress is a benefit. Well, we've given you a lot of food for thought here, and like Decalb, Asgro has a wealth of agronomic information on its website, asgro.com. There it takes you to an agronomy section for Decalb, Asgro, and Delta Pine, and from there you can aggregate by crop and find some very valuable information. You can also reach out to a representative who can pull in folks like Harmon to investigate challenges you might be facing. And Harmon, thank you so much for taking the time to be a part of the discussion today on Fast Line, Fast Track. We certainly appreciate it, and you're welcome to come back anytime. Hey, thank you very much. We uh, really appreciate you uh, getting the word out on agronomics, and I uh, uh, love to always uh, help growers uh, figure out how we can uh, maximize more uh, corn and soybeans. Again, we've been chatting with Harmon Wiltz, a technical agronomist with Decalb Asgrow. Chandler Equipment. For 51 years, Chandler Equipment has been manufacturing excellence. The finest quality in pull type and truck mount fertilizer lime spreaders and litter spreaders, fertilizer tenders, seed tenders, and litter conveyors. They also sell a full line of Raven Industries Precision Ag products. To find out more about the full Chandler product line or to find a Chandler Equipment dealer near you, visit ChandlerEquipment.net or give them a call at 800-243-3319. Well, next up on Fast Line Fast Track, a couple of news items of note, including a follow-up to an item we brought you last week. On Wednesday, the U.S. Senate confirmed Catherine Tai as President Biden's pick to be the next U.S. Trade Representative. Tai was confirmed by a unanimous 98 to nothing vote. Tai had already won a unanimous voice vote in committee, and it was clear her experience as a House trade staffer and bipartisanship would cement her easy Senate confirmation. Senate Finance Chair Ron Wyden called Tai a terrific person for U.S. Trade Representative. She led crackdowns against China's trade cheating and job ripoffs. As the top trade staffer on the Ways and Means Committee, she was at the forefront to improve the new NAFTA, 
She's already got a long track record of achieving wins for America's workers, businesses, farmers, and ranchers. And this from Senate GOP leader Mitch McConnell. Catherine Tai is just the kind of qualified and mainstream person who is positioned to serve President Biden and the country uh, quite well. I look forward to working with Ms. Tai to embrace trade and push back on abusive practices from China and other anti-competitive countries. Tai committed to enforcing the China Phase 1 deal and the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement, which are keys for U.S. agriculture. Chairman Wyden says Tai also agreed to be more open with lawmakers on trade issues. Ms. Tai has committed to the Finance Committee that she will work to bring more transparency to trade policy. I know that Ms. Tai will continue to raise the bar for that transparency and communications with the Congress because she has been on our side of policy making and she's already proved that that kind of openness and accountability is a key priority for her. But most of all, Wyden says Ty is committed to protecting and expanding high-skilled, high-wage jobs for American workers through enforcement of existing trade deals and new ones. And a special thanks to Matt Kay of Burns Bureau, Washington, for that audio. And staying with trade... China bought a large shipment of U.S. corn on Tuesday. Private exporters reported the sale of 1.15 million tons of corn for delivery by the end of August. The corn is equivalent to more than 45 million bushels and was worth $251 million based on Chicago futures prices. It was the largest sale of U.S. corn to China since the Asian nation bought 2.1 million tons of corn on January 29th. Successful Farming says the USDA expects China to buy a record $31.5 billion worth of U.S. farm exports in the fiscal year that ends on September 30th, thanks in part to its large corn purchases last fall. Sales in the fiscal year 2020 totaled $17 billion when the trade war was in full swing. If those purchases happened, China would be back on top as the number one customer for U.S. farm goods. Last year, China was third in line behind Canada and Mexico. Despite a large number of recent purchases, China didn't meet the target in its Phase 1 trade agreement with the U.S. when it pledged to buy $36.6 billion worth of food, agricultural commodities, and seafood products in 2020. This year, that target is even higher at $43.5 billion. World Ag Expo Online is not just one week. We'll be here all year long with new information, seminars, links to exhibitors, and more. Mark your calendar to make sure you visit the show website every month. Want to get monthly reminders of updated news and information? Go to worldagexpo.org to sign up for the email newsletter. More than 600 online exhibitors coming from 48 states and 65 countries. Attendance is free for the online show throughout 2021. Just go to worldagexpo.org. Well, next up this week on Fastline Fast Track, Jesse Allen is back with another Market Talk update. He and Mike Zuzalo of Global Commodity Analytics talk about how November soybeans and December corn priced themselves historically in the month of March, and Mike has some great data to back it up. Jesse, the mic is all yours. Well, thank you, Brent, for uh, another week here on Fastline Fast Track with this Market Talk update. Talking with Mike Zuzalo of Global Commodity Analytics this week just uh, about the current state of the grain and livestock markets. And Mike shared some interesting data with me looking at the relationship between November soybeans and December corn and how they priced themselves historically in the month of March. And a really interesting discussion, some exclusive data that Mike had. And uh, here are the results that he had. He explains it a little more for us. This is a, a piece of just data data points that I wanted to see exactly how November beans and December corn reacted 
to one another in terms of how they price themselves in the month of March, given these last 12 or 13 years, and then how they price themselves given the month of April. And so the specific prices you see are the April moves from the opening in the 1st of April to the closing at the end of April. And you notice an interesting feature here. Um, there are more frequent times that the corn closes higher. Eight out of the last 13 years, uh, December corn's been able to close higher in the month of April. And you notice that the month of March really had very little to do with that. Uh, in the soybeans, the month of April, you can only count about six times out of the last 13 years or six Aprils out of the last 13 months of April that you've been able to close higher in that month. And, and what I did then also was to look at the March closes and try and line up for each of them. Then, and that's what you see in the green when you had a March close higher and then you had an April close higher. And I found it very interesting that you only had four times a piece in each of those complexes that both March and April closes were higher from their opening prices. And they're all different except for 2014. And so corn and beans really can divorce themselves during this time period, Jesse. And I think that's really important to that earlier point about the bean corn ratio right now. And when I look at 2008, because that's my model year, that's the top uh, number in 2008. You see that uh, we closed higher in the month of March for 2008 for December corn, lower in the month of March 2008 for November beans. And that closed lower in the March, a month of March for beans was massive. It was three to four dollars in terms of a break lower. Then we came back in April and closed about a dollar forty higher in the month uh, for November beans for April. Whereas with corn, December corn closed higher in 2008, both in the month of March and in the month of April. And boy, they really did a good job in the month of April, closing 45 and a half cents higher. Uh, this was a big, big deal to me because of the fact that we saw uh, such a big premium in the soybeans back then. We saw a soy oil rally back then. And I think we could be geared up for kind of a similar price action, especially if we stay wet as we walk into the April uh, time period. And USDA, if they don't give us any kind of a strange number with those great big corn acres that the trade's worried about. Well, one of the things that Mike mentioned is uh, definitely keeping some options open, keeping the top side open here, especially if you're marketing new crop uh corn and or beans and or wheat and uh, you can listen to more from that episode from earlier this last week at markettalkag.com a lot of great insight into the grain markets on the livestock side lean hogs continue to uh, press higher uh, here throughout the week we broke some hundred dollar kind of psychological resistance in the hog market and here is what mike had to say about the state of the hog market yeah, I think the retail prices are starting to literally take hold here and cut out the featuring. I, I saw the beef feature activity by USDA last Friday was up, I think, double digits. I want to say some of the activity uh, advertisements on the featuring by retailers was in the 20s percent percentage level higher than what it had been over the course of the last four weeks. And so I think beef is really going to start getting its market share and, and I think it's going to really start to take away from the pork side of the equation at the retail meat counter. Um, the, the other thing that I think, it, it, and this is where I'm hedging, you know, we talked about getting above $100 or at $100 and start hedging. I want to be hedged at this point. If I worked for a fair to finish hog producer, which they're very thin and far between at this stage of the game in our industry. But if I worked with one, uh, I would say get all of your summer marketings hedged here at this point. 
because I think one of the key factors that's led this hog market higher, not just has been the funds, but it's been the belly market. And this is a very counter seasonal odd move for the bellies to be going this sharply higher, especially as we go into summer or early summer. This is not quite BLT season yet. And uh, that seasonal seems a little bit uh, far off in the distance for the kind of belly prices we're looking at right now. So I would I had a call from a client today and he said, I got a guy that says buy hogs. It's a hundred bucks in June. It's gone to $125. I said, that may be, if you want to put the order in, I'll write it. But I'm not participating in that mindset at all. I think the hogs are getting old uh, in terms of the rally potential and that as the April goes off the board, it's not uncommon in my experience that as April hogs go off the board, you leave, you lose your rocket fuel to the upside when that May takes over as lead month. So just keep that in mind as you're looking at these prices. And again, that's comments from Mike Zuzalo of Global Commodity Analytics. And this has been another Market Talk update here on Fastline Fast Track reporting in Nashville. I'm Jesse Allen. You can find Jesse's daily market updates at markettalkag.com. Again, markettalkag.com. And you can find him by searching Market Talk on Facebook. He also appears on the American Ag Network. And you can hear him host Your Ag Today, weekday mornings about 6.50 a.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Satellite Radio, Rural Radio Channel 147. And next up on Fast Line Fast Track, it's time for another installment of Bushels and Cents with our buddy, the hot rod farmer, Raybo Hacks. Don't forget, you can check out all of his great multimedia content at farmmachinerydigest.com. Welcome to Bushels and Cents, a weekly podcast from the Farm Machinery Digest. I am your host, Ray Bohax, the hot rod farmer. And never forget, it is not what you make, but what you keep that counts. Many shop manuals from the vehicle or equipment manufacturer are offered as a digital download for a fraction of the price of the previously printed versions. The low production volume was the reason printed versions became so expensive. With the complexity of even a 15-year-old machine, it is foolish and cost-ineffective to not have a shop manual. Find out which manuals are offered digitally and make the purchase. I then send the file to either an office supply store or a print shop in town, and for a few dollars they publish and put it in a binder. Agriculture runs on machinery, profits on reliability. Visit FarmMachineryDigest.com, where steel and soil meet. Don't forget, Ray Bohax has launched Farm Machinery Digest Radio on Sirius XM Rural Radio, Channel 147. It airs each Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern and again on Sundays at 6 p.m. Eastern. I hope you go and give him a listen. Well, next up on Fast Line Fast Track, we take a trip over to the musical side of the house. For this week's special guest, we had to look no further than the great state of Alabama. She's one part war eagle, one part muscle shoals, and one part true country grit. Cameron Dubois, welcome in to Fast Line Fast Track. Thank you so much. How have you been? I've been great. It's been real busy um, lately. I think uh, things are starting to open up a little bit, uh, given the circumstances we've been living in lately. And I've just been recording in Nashville and muscle shoals. And a little bit in Birmingham and Montgomery. So just trying to keep it on a roll. And we're going to talk a whole lot more about Cameron and her career in just a moment. But before we do, I want to kick things off with a song from Cameron Dubois. This is Bridges on Fast Line Fast Track. In my white wedding dress, I'm waving to the bridesmaids. Across the county line, cans are clinging down the highway. I'll be the top. Say I'm gonna come 
Good stuff from Cameron Dubois. And uh, make sure you go out and check out the video for that one. Really cool video for that song as well. Tell us about that. Thank you. Okay, so we um, we actually ended up filming that in uh, two different areas, uh, Leapers Fort. Uh, there's this really cool bridge that um, my director, Josh Sigma, he had scoped out before we went up to film. He goes, I think this would be perfect for the shot for your video. So we went down and uh, it was it was really cool. We got to stand in the middle of the road and when cars weren't coming and stuff. And then we also filmed right below the bridge. And um, and then we filmed a little bit of it up in Nashville, uh, downtown Nashville. Because the song is basically, to me, what the song means is I had graduated from Auburn and I had a degree to do something else, uh, civil engineering. And I had a job offer to go to Charleston, but I kind of turned that down because I wanted to give music a shot. So it's like, I know it's like a runaway bride song, but it was like, it kind of, it kind of speaks to me in the fact that, you know, I turned down what I thought I wanted to do for my future to go chase the stream of music in Nashville. And so that's why we filmed it in the Nashville area. So it's pretty cool. Well, that's very cool. I, I know you, you have that as a fallback. You studied civil and environmental engineering there at Auburn. Where did that interest come from? And if you couldn't be doing music, what, what could you see yourself doing? Well, um, so I, I was interning with a company, it's called Hazen and Sawyer, and they were out of Hoover, Alabama. They have offices all over the places, but what they do is water treatment. And so they work at water treatment plants. And so that's what I like while I was an intern over the summer, while I wasn't in school, that's what I was doing. And that's probably, I'd probably be up in Charleston doing some water treatment, you know, living the nine to five dream that some people, you know, love to live. And if you've got that country music bug at all, that's a great motivator to get out and start working on your music, isn't it? Yeah, it is. <laughs> Where did you find the interest in engineering? Where did that come in? Well, I, um, I've always been very mathematically like inclined. I'm, I've always been a very analytical thinker. And uh, some people, they think it's you know funny because I do music too, which, I mean, they say you use a different part of your brain for that. But um, that was always my strong suit in school. And um, I really, when I was coming out of high school, I wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do. Um, and I talked to my uncle who was an engineer and he asked, well, what are you, what are you strong in? And, and I told him I'm, a, you know, I'm very mathematically inclined and uh, I love physics. And he goes, well, you should think about, you know, doing civil engineering. It's very broad. He goes, you'll have time to discover what you want to do in that area because it's such a broad um major and he actually was an environmental civil engineer and so i kind of he kind of inspired me to go down that route and so that's how i ended up having um or how i ended up graduating with that so and i absolutely hated writing papers in, in school and that was like the one major where you didn't have to worry about writing any papers so that's pretty there cool. you go you grew up there in Hank Williams country, Montgomery, Alabama. What was it like growing up there? And when did you discover country music? Um, Montgomery it has so much of a, of a history. And I'd always, you know, grown up knowing about Hank Williams and Hank Williams Jr. And, you know, Jamie Johnson, he's also from mm -hmm. the area. Yeah. Um, and so it's just, there's a lot of Nat King Cole, which is a different, it's not country music, but he was also, that's where he was. Um, he lived for a little while and, um, there's just so much history in the area. Um, there, it's, a, it's a lot of, 
history of civil rights, music. And in fact, it's really cool because um, I grew up on Hank because, you know, I'm from the Montgomery area, so I knew all of his stuff. And uh, I had an opportunity to get on Country Rebel, and I was like, where can we film this to make this really cool? So we asked the Hank Williams Museum if, you know, if they wouldn't mind if we came in and did a tribute for him. So uh, they let me come in. We uh, set up right in front of his blue little Cadillac, and I did his one of his most famous Your Cheatin' Heart song, and um, it's just, it was really neat. Yeah, for sure. And I had a chance to check out their performance and it's out there online. If you, if you just Google uh, uh, Cameron's name plus the Hank Williams Museum and uh, great performance, Re really, really, uh, uh, you know, put a different twist on that song is really neat to hear. Thank you. I tend to people always say that I, I that's I've never it's not that I try to steer clear of doing it just like the record, but typically when I cover songs, I always put like it, it just happens naturally. It's not what I mean to do, but I do my kind of my own version of it. So um, and that's with most covers that I do. So it was really cool, though. I will say that. Well, shout out to uh, Beth there at the uh, at the museum. There's some great folks there at that. Yes, museum. thank you, Beth. Uh, I'm yes. uh, looking forward to getting down there and doing a show from there. We've been wanting to do that for a long time. So looking forward to that. When did you know that music was something that you wanted to do as a career? As a career, you know, growing up, I'd always had a love for it. Um, I grew up, my dad, he's, he was a big time singer and he loved, he loved music throughout his life. And, you know, one of my main hobbies with him, what we do, we drive around, we listen to music on the radio and I'd learn all of the, uh, you know, all of his favorites, like Leonard Skinner, The Beatles, The Eagles, uh, Alan Jackson, Martina McBride. I grew up on so many different influences, and I'd always, I'd always been the one to sing. But I was a very shy girl growing up. Mm -hmm. um, but I'd always, I knew I had. There was something in my heart that always wanted to do something with it. And you know, I, I grew up, and when I was about twelve years old, I took interest in learning the guitar. And my parents didn't really think I was going to learn it. And so they bought me, you know, this little cheap old guitar. Uh, I forget where it was from. I think it was like Target or something. And uh, I ended up, you know, teaching myself how to play. And then when I got to high school, I taught myself piano. Like, you know, I, I used to bang on the keys when I was younger, but um, I actually developed a, a sound for that. And the issue with me is I have always had a passion for it, but... I've always been a very, very shy person. And so what, when I, I started branching out and it was really my senior year, I was doing a competition. It was a scholarship uh, competition, but uh, for college money. And uh, one of the things that you had to do was a talent. And the only thing I could think to do was to sing and, and play guitar. And so uh, I ended up singing John Lennon's Imagine um, and played it. And I had a lot of positive feedback from it. Like people saying, while you're in college, you know, you should pursue this on the side. So um, I started just slowly doing competitions in college. And, um, but I always thought I would be working the civil engineering nine to five. I thought that was my future at the time. Um, but it was my senior year after going through competitions and then just starting to slowly play out areas acoustically that it was my spring break, I'd come back um, to Pigeon Forge. 
and I was in NACMA. And so um, I was up there singing original music and I was in this little session one night and a little writers, like everybody went around and uh, we sat in a circle and everybody went around and sang and played one song. And this is when I was, you know, I thought I was graduating. I was about to be gone. I was about to go to South Carolina. Um, I, we were in this circle and I, then we went around and it came to me and I played a song and the guy sitting next to me, um, he does artist development. His name is Bernard Porter with PCG and he was given a seminar for NACMA. And he goes, after I finished singing, he goes, he gave me his card. He says, I think you have what it takes. He goes, come to my seminar tomorrow. He goes, I can introduce you to a lot of people in Nashville. So we went to it. We loved what he had to say. And um, we, me and my dad, we just sat down with him and talked like, you know, what, where we go from there. And that was the moment where I was like, my dad looked at me and he was like, cause he, he's a very firm believer in me. And he mm -hmm. goes, you know, him and my mom. And he was, they were like, you know, do you want to give this a shot? Is this something you really want to do? And I said, absolutely. And so after that senior spring break, I just, you know, I had the job offer to go to Charleston, turned that down, started hitting the road in Nashville and never looked back. <laughs> so. Well, I tell you, we've had other PCG artists on here. I know uh, your, your pals with Ava Rowland and also we've had the Render Sisters yeah. on here uh, among others. Uh, how has uh, PCG and, and Bernard and his team really helped develop you as an artist? I'll tell you this. I honestly, if I didn't meet him, I'm not sure if I would be where I am right now. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not saying it couldn't have happened, but honestly, being a part of PCG has really helped jump start my career. Bernard introduced me to so many songwriters, so many people in Nashville to get connected. And so it really helped me, you know, develop quickly. And I'm still, you know, developing, but, um, but he just introduced me to producers, songwriters, um, just anybody in the, in the entertainment world when it comes to music. And it was, it's been a gift because he's also the reason how I got to Muscle Shoals. He introduced me to Michael Curtis and Muscle Shoals. And um, I, that's where I got my first EP out of. And uh -huh. that's where I kind of really found my sound, so. Well, in fact, PCG, thanks so much of you. If you go to the website, pcgartistdevelopment.com, uh, you'll see Cameron's face right there on the homepage. It's kind of the uh, the welcoming face to the uh, to the organization, and uh, I think that's cool. Also, we'd be remiss if we didn't point out that uh, you're just coming off of being the February uh, Spotlight Artist of the Month on WSM Radio in Nashville, the home of the Grand Ole yeah, Opry. Really cool. What did you think when you found out that you were selected for that honor? I thought I was like, this is not for real. <laughs> At first, I was like, I, I had to like root through it again. I was like, okay, this is for real. So, I mean, it, it, it's a, it's a, it's a dream come true. You know, another step of, of something that I'd never thought would happen, and it did. And those spots were awesome too. That that was really neat to hear. And what would it mean to you to someday stand in that hallowed circle there on the Grand Ole Opry stage? Oh, I mean, that's my ultimate. If I could just, if I could get to that point, I will know. I, I. I I accomplished something that I've always wanted to do because I've, you know, I've grown up seeing, you know, the greatest acts and even, you know, sat in to, for some shows on ticket and, and watch some of the greatest acts come through there. And I mean, that right there is, it's hard to 
beat that, especially with country music. You can't beat that as a as a, a milestone. Yeah. Now, I know you talked about uh, driving around and listening to to artists with your dad. Who are some of the female artists who inspired you? Because when I listen to you, I, I hear kind of a Martina McBride, Trisha Yearwood, Patty Loveless type vibe there. Yeah. Yeah. I got um, I used to listen. Uh, so we listened to Martina. Uh, I grew up on like Sarah Evans and also um, Sugarland, Jennifer Nettles. Yeah. Um, and I get a lot of people who they compare me to her as far as like similar sounds they say i sound a lot like her but i mean i grew up on all those female artists and in their music and you know even when i was a little girl shy i was still in my room sitting down with a speaker singing along you know trying to find the harmony trying to hit those power notes you know as a little girl um dolly of course uh she's and, and emmy lou harris I'm, I'm a huge fan of emmy lou harris's songwriting Mm -hmm. um, but there's just so many incredible women in uh, country music that I, that I don't even know where to end, honestly. Yeah. What kind of work goes into developing your voice? Because I think it's more than just having to, uh, to show up and, and grab a mic and sing. I would imagine there's a lot that goes into uh, just honing your craft and, and really finding your voice and who you are as an artist. Yeah. Um, I think, to me, finding my voice first off it's there's a lot of influence outside of country music uh, i get a lot of comments when i play you know live shows i got some southern rock feel to my voice some soul you know soul country rock and that just comes from growing up on so many different kinds of music you know i grew up on southern rock with my dad i mean he was a huge leonard skinner fan i knew every every word of every song because We'd listen to it all the time. And I think it's kind of the influence of like growing up on certain music, like soul, country, you know, it all. And and really, I think it also boils down to, I guess, owning your confidence when you do play live shows. Because I can just tell when I first started out, I sound like a different person than I do now. And I think that's because you have to earn your chops. You have to go out, you have to practice, you have to put in the work. It's a muscle like anything else. And, um, and so I would say it just a lot of hard work and, and really, um, and I also worked with a vocal co coach, um, that Brian, I mean, excuse me, Bernard had, uh, introduced me to his name was Brian, <laughs> the yeah. vocal coach. Um, and uh, he helped me open up my my vocals and not be so strainful, I guess, on it and really, you know, find what's comfortable for me and what works for me. So when did songwriting come in for you? So I honestly, I started songwriting before I even knew like I was doing this full time. So I started songwriting in college. And it was just, you know, me in my room singing and playing. And um, uh, my cousin at the time, he was a, he was very supportive of me. And he was like, you know, you need to, and he's, he videos. He goes, you need to put on, put up some of your original music, um, you know, put it on YouTube. You never know who it could reach. He said, it's, he, he said it was good music. So we would sit and I would write a song and we would record it and he'd video it and pop it up on YouTube. Some of them are taken down now, now that I've like really started doing it as a career. But um, I really started tapping into it in college. And I can tell just working since I've started doing this full time working with songwriters, not just in, in Nashville, 
but in Muscle Shoals. Um, also, I've been working with songwriters here in Montgomery, Alabama, especially when COVID hit. We were writing like crazy here. Uh-huh. And um, Rick Hansen is one that, and Bill Hines are two from Montgomery that I have done a lot of writing with. And they're just, Rick, he's such an incredible lyricist and he really opened my eyes on how, how to go about writing a song. And I can really tell my writing has developed a lot more now or it's more mature now than it was, you know, when I started out just like free will in it, just, just, just finding my way. So, um, it's, it's been a very awesome journey, but it's really cool because you get different sounds and song like lyrics from different parts of, if you work in Nashville, it's going to be sound different than it is in Muscle Shoals In Muscle Shoals. It's going to sound different than it does in Montgomery. And so that's when I really was like, I need to boil down and not only just co-write, but also write my own stuff. And so I finally recorded for the first time a song that I wrote by myself. Um, and we just finished recording it in Nashville. How did that feel to get that out and, and to be able to hear it back? Oh, man. I mean, I tell you, at that right there is an accomplishment in itself because I know when I first started songwriting, um, you know, like I, like I did it by myself and I, I was working with, you know, at the time I'd met uh, Teddy Gentry from Alabama and he kind of took me under his wing as well as another artist that uh, he was working with. That was a good friend of mine that I played with, Kurt Johnson. And, you know, I, I, I brought a song. It's not just to him, but I, I brought ideas to, you know, people who have been in the business a lot longer than I have that I just wrote by myself and getting their feedback. It can be discouraging so it took me a while to really get back to being confident in my own writing and just owning it and i feel like i'm there now because that's where i feel like my greatest work comes out of um and so that's why i'm so excited to release this first one that i have written by myself music melody everything it's lyrics or it's all mine and um except for you know the the producer and, and, and everybody who was on the record, they did a phenomenal job um, really interpreting the song. And it's it's gonna be really, really exciting to see. It's a little nerve wracking because you know that you're putting yourself out there for the first time as far as like being vulnerable, like 100% yourself. But I'm really looking forward to it. I think it's, I think it's what needs to happen, honestly, so. Well, you mentioned Muscle Shoals. True music lovers certainly know and appreciate the impact Muscle Shoals has had on modern music with everybody from Skinner to the Stones to Aretha Franklin to Bob Dylan recording there. Even some of Willie Nelson's uh, work was recorded there. As an artist, you did some time in Nashville, but then headed to Muscle Shoals to develop your identity. Why did you decide to do that and, and what were the dividends there? Honestly, and there's nothing, this is not, I'm not here to, you know, say anything bad about Nashville. I love Nashville. Sure. I love what the, I mean, so many, so many talented people. Um, so it's nothing against them at all. Uh, I think it was just, I felt lost, I guess, when I first started out, you know, I was young. I, this was, this whole music business was very, very new to me. And, um, and, you know, I was still discovering myself and I was right with a lot of people, but it just didn't feel like me. And so that's when Bernard, he's like, well, you're an Alabama girl. He goes, you need to go 
he goes, I'm going to introduce you to some people in Muscle Shoals. He goes, you need to go check it out, check out the history of it. And when I went down there and visited, I just fell in love because there's so, like you said, it's, it's incredible how many hit records and how many legends have come out of that. The Rolling Stones, Aretha Franklin, uh, um, Leonard Ronstadt, um, I mean, Leonard Skinner. And I felt a lot of like similarities in the, in the feel of the songs when I, you know, I heard it that felt more like me. So that's when I was, uh, I decided I was like, this, this is my home. This is, this is where I need to, or that's where I started with my first EP. And I worked with um, uh, Michael Curtis and uh, Cindy Walker. She's one of the Shoal sisters and we would sit down, uh, co-write and um, ended up getting pretty much all those songs with the exception of a couple on the EP are songs that we, that I've, been a part of as far as writing or co-writing and it really felt like me you know branching out for the first time when people want to get to know who you who Cameron Dubois is as a new artist that's where that sound that that swampy like soulful you know it's kind of southern rock it's real it's not real much really poppy um country came out of and that's where I was like this is where I want to you know record my first EP. When you talk about Michael Curtis, man, he's worked with Randy Travis and Fleetwood Mac and Blake Shelton, and uh, you were there in uh, in Wishbone Studios. That's some pretty legendary stuff for your first time out of the gate. No, I mean, that's what I'm saying. It's, it's been a, it's been a really eye opening process uh, working with Bernard and PCG because I mean it is artist development, and what is great about it is they have introduced us to so many people who have worked with incredible artists. And, and legends, in fact. In fact, last week I was in Muscle Shoals recording and got to record with um, one of the Swampers, the original Swampers. Wow. The one that was on Aretha Franklin's Respect and all the big hits. And uh, David Hood, he's the bass player. And just, it, it, it was really eye opening because it's like once you meet people, you it just, and you get involved in communities, you get to be, that you know you branch out and you meet other people and you just never know who you're going to meet and i never thought for the life of me that i would have him or will mcfarland who was with bonnie Raitt, who is a big you know inspiration to me that was his guitarist and he got to play on my record muscle shoals too so it was just it's really cool getting to work with some legends that i thought would never happen when if that wasn't stellar enough then the instrumental tracks uh, for a lot of those works were cut at ricky skaggs's studio uh, just outside of nashville using some of the best players in the business ricky skaggs we originally were supposed to record the record in muscle shoals but something went wrong with the soundboard so we had to move it so we ended up getting to go to skaggs which was really cool in henderson mill and uh it, I mean, it was the time of my life and i recorded a lot most of my vocals up there but i we came back and recorded the vocals in uh, wishbone studios and muscle shoals um for a few of the songs as well so kind of got a little bit of both so well in addition to those soulful swampy muscle shoals sounds on some of those songs you got to do something that not many independent artists get to do you actually had a semblance of a choir accompany you uh, you know, that, that was one on one of the songs here that we'll get to in a second here piece that kind of stopped me in my tracks as I was doing something else and listening to it, because that's, uh, uh that, that's something you don't hear that much these days. And that, that, that was really a great touch. 
It was. I'll tell you, it, watching those girls work with the Shoal sisters, watching them work is incredible. It's just three of them. But you would have thought it was an entire choir on the back of that yeah. record, just with all the harmonies that they added. And, I mean, they've worked with legends. And it's just, it's an honor that they, you know, wanted to work with me and be on, you know, my first EP coming out as a starting artist. But that's what I love because I, you know, I, I'm a country artist, but I'm influenced by so many different genres and fields. And one of that is like soulful, you know, churchy, like music and in peace. That's where it's basically, we were taking country music to church. And so I was like, we have got to have the choir. I've always wanted to, you know, have like a choir on, on one of my records. And uh, so that was, it was really cool to watch them three work. It was um, Rebecca Lynn Howard as well. And, um, I'm blanking, um, but I mean, just they're all three. If you you can go find them online, incredible artists. So well, you're right. Listening to it, it did sound a lot like uh, 20 people as opposed to three people on there. Tell me a bit about the video for this one. Uh, so peace. We we shot this one in Nashville and also Leaper Sport. Um, we found we just found some really cool areas that we wanted to shoot it in, and the music video. To me, I've always, I've always grown up. If I don't get peace in my mind about a situation, then typically it turns out that what I didn't get peace about, there was a reason why I didn't get peace about it. So that song is really talking about if you don't have peace in your mind about, you know, if you should do something or do this or that or or where you should go, then typically you should listen to your inner voice or that inner voice and i just from personal experience it's always been a thing for me and you know we turn into a relationship song it's a breakup song about a girl not you know getting peace with um her man and you find out why because he's cheating on her uh which i've been there <laughs> i'm sure there's a little, been a lot of people that have been there um but uh it was really cool we got um we uh that was the first time i brought in another you know another guy to come in and, and video with me and um we shot it out in leaper sport we shot it in uh, a little hayfield and we also shot some of the shots in nashville and it was it was a good day let's hear that single now from cameron dubois shall we this is peace on fast line fast track you just keep pulling my heart and that's it so good I want to see what your love brings but every time I think I should there's a still small voice within me and since I met you it just won't cease you could offer the world on a silver platter but I just can't get no peace
stuff and very well done thank you I, I meant to say we also shot that uh downtown franklin around the roundabout and josh sikama he was the guy who uh video bridges for us but he also did that one and it was i mean he just has a great eye um for for finding good visual places with good lighting and uh spencer berry he was part of that project that was the that was the lover boy <laughs> So tell me a bit about building up a following as an artist, because you've had the opportunity to do some pretty cool things. You know, you talked about Teddy Gentry before. You had the chance to open up a gospel show that Alabama put on in their hometown of Fort Payne, Alabama. You've also had the chance to open up for the likes of Luke Combs, who's about as big a star as you can get in country music right now. Neil McCoy, Thompson Square, Easton Corbin, the Josh Abbott Band, and John Michael Montgomery. What were those experiences like? Because you really jumped headfirst into the deep end here. Uh, it's just, it, it, it's really, it's, it's almost unbelievable. I, I should say that, you know, I've had these opportunities to, to open yeah. up with such great acts. And, and some of them were through PCG uh, that I was able to open for um, like John Michael Montgomery and Neil McCoy. Um, but uh, as far as like, uh, that's kind of what's cool about the journey is, is you just never know what a show is going to lead to. Yeah. And I was, this was back when I was starting out, you know, full time. I was baby starting out, you know, 
and I won this competition to sing the national anthem down in Toadlick, which is in da- I mean, excuse me, it's down in Dothan. It's called Toad mm-hmm. Toadlick Festival. But I mean, they don't do it anymore. Um, but Luke Combs was coming through, and also Riley Green. And I was just singing the national anthem that day. And this was back before, I mean, they were, Luke, his song started, Hurricane started getting a buzz. So he was starting to get noticed, but people still didn't know who he was. It was right before he blew up. And um, that kind of led to, you know, conversation. We were talking and, and found out that he was coming through playing at rock bottom and got to open a show for him uh, in, a, in a little small area in, in Montgomery, Alabama. And a year later, he's on the CMA Awards, which is wild to me. Um, but also, I mean, I would say just like little gigs have led to others, like as far as op- opening for Thompson Square and Easton Corbin, uh, we were playing a band gig and the somebody from Maxwell Air Force Base had heard us sing and we're like, we want to get you guys in to come open for Thompson Square and Easton Corbin for the 4th of July show. And so, you know, you just, you just never know what a show is going to lead to, whether it's a small or big one, who's there watching and what connections they have to help you further your career. Sure. Well, I tell you what, because of COVID, so many artists have struggled to get dates on the calendar, but a quick check of your website shows that you're pretty busy these days here. You got uh, quite a few shows without even having to leave the state of Alabama. In fact, I think I kind of 12 dates on the calendar in March alone. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's one, one thing about COVID is right when it first hit, um, you know, everything was shut down for months and nobody knew what was going to happen or what the future held for the industry. But one good thing about it is, you know, I know I was bummed out when it first hit because I had a lot of full band gigs lined up and I was ready to go. We were about to, you know, hit the ground running and COVID hit, stopped everything. But one good thing about it is once things started opening up there, I mean, most venues, they're still not looking for full bands. Some are just depending on the state and and, and where it is and the, in the or what county it's in. But um it's been perfect for acoustic acts. Mm-hmm. Like I know there's so many venues now cause they can't have full band gigs. They'll bring in an acoustic act. And so it's really, it's really helped out as far as having acoustic shows around the state. Um, so it's been good. What about building a fan base outside of Alabama? You know, you've had a chance to a lot of, uh, play a lot of fairs and festivals. Is there any kind of plan in place for once things start opening up to to uh, kind of spread outside of Alabama and uh, start uh, building that base elsewhere? Yeah. So I'm actually working with a promoter out of Huntsville, and um, he just got me a few gigs in Wyoming because um, they're open. And we're trying to branch out. Possibly we might have some potential places in South Carolina and Colorado and Vegas probably, but it honestly, it depends on what the state, how it's really still up in the air with a lot of states. Um, Mm -hmm. So as far as until COVID kind of clears up and states start really reopening and wanting full band gigs and acts, uh, I know one good thing that's really helped my following is just continuing to release music and putting product out there and, 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 you know, trying to reach other people virtually, um, that, you know, you typically would want to reach 
you know, in person. And so that's really helped me in the meantime, but it is starting to look up. Um, I do have three dates in Wyoming that have just, I ju just got confirmed. Uh, it was kind of up in the air with COVID, but those just got confirmed. So I'm hoping that maybe, you know, it'll, for some of these other states like Colorado, South Carolina, you know, they'll, they'll be kind of in the same vein here in a few months. Well, before we go any further, I want to share with everybody a song that you put out about a year ago called Lipstick and Chrome. Tell us about this one. So, wild story about the song. Um, I was not a writer on it. Uh, it was uh, Katie Barber, uh, Jimmy Thrasher, and Michael Curtis, which was my producer. And um, they had sat down in a songwriting session and they wrote it. Well, the day that they had written it, I was out shooting my very first music video, uh, which was The Home Place, which is a, it's probably, that's my most sentimental song that I have out right now. It's about a special home in my life that has been a part of my family for over a century. But um, we were shooting the video there that day because we, we were getting, they were getting ready to sell it. I mean, it was coming to the end and I didn't have any service out there really because it's just out in the, you know, the country. And I get back in my car, we're heading home, and uh, I see all these texts and missed calls. Like, did you hear the song? Did you hear the song? Did you, you know, did you like it? Like, what, what's going on? Why haven't you answered my calls? And I was like, oh gosh, it was Michael, my producer. And I went to, you know, I talked to him about it, and he goes, go listen to the song, and he showed it to me. And what's cool about that song is he had no idea. None, nobody that was writing the song had no idea, but there's a line in there that goes, you're a Harley Dooley pickup man I'm a 65 Mustang yeah. well my grandfather he has a red 65 Mustang <laughs> I'm a 65 Mustang nobody knew about this but in my first music video I said I I want to you know in as many music videos as I can put it in I want to put it there the red 65 Mustang so we brought it to Clanton and we were filming and when we got back in the car and I heard the song and I heard that line I was like I called him back and said, Michael, you're not going to believe this. Um, you will, we had just got done filming in Clanton in front of my grandfather's red 65 Mustang. And so then I was just like, I got to record this. First off, it's it's got so much influence as far as like, um, like Southern rock feel, which is a lot of influence in my music. It's very rocking and fun. And with that line, I was like, we got to record it. So we ended up recording it. And that ended up being like my first, I guess, like more rocking song that i've released that was really cool so now you know the story behind it here's lipstick and chrome on fast line fast track
Imagine that one and get them going live, huh? <laughs> I love to play that one live because when I play live, I love to rock out. Like when I'm, I'm when I play guitar, I don't just I beat the crap out of it sometimes, no. just like trying to like you know really get into it and stuff. So I love playing that one out live. Well, you dropped your most recent song, "Let Him Miss Me," recently, and that one is doing quite well. Tell us about the inspiration behind this song. So we were going through songs. Um, to record or we had written, we had a batch of songs that we had written and we were going through trying to pick out what songs we wanted to, you know, keep and what songs we wanted to kind of throw in the pile as far as on my first EP. And we sat down one day, I was sitting, sitting down with Michael, my producer, and he goes, well, let's listen to through these batch of songs written by other writers and see if there's anything out there that had, you know, emotionally or, or you know reaches you or that you could see yourself doing and we listened through about i would say about 25 of them and uh, this song just it really stuck out to me especially um with what i was going through at the time and i you know i, was, I he, he told me to take the songs home listen to them sit on them see if there's you know you know if your mind changes or anything and that song just kind of always stuck with me and um, I just, I think it's a great song because it, it kind of shows two sides of emotion. Like, you know, when someone hurts you, you know, you, you want to be strong and you don't want to take them right back if they come, for, you know, wanting you in your arms. But it also shows deep down inside the real emotion they're feeling like, even though they're not going to take you back right now and they're, it's killing them too. Like, so it shows a side of weakness and, and also a side of, you know, being strong about something. And I've always been that kind of person um, where I'm, you know, I've always been a very independent person. If someone, you know, hurts me, you're going to know you're going to have to sit through it. If you think you're going to just come crawling back to me, it's just not going to happen. Uh, you're really going to have to think about it and, and, and understand, you know, it, it's, it's a song most about like, you know, just really understanding your self-worth and happiness first. Um, 
and that's that's kind of why I don't know the song it really spoke to me at the time and I thought it was beautifully written well, as we close things out this week, let's hear one last song from Cameron Dubois. This is Let Him Miss Me on Fast Line, Fast Track. He's been calling, he's been trying to get back in touch. I've been hearing that he really misses how it was. Yeah, it's sounding like he's had his freedom long enough. But before I go and call him up, let him know I'm still in love Let him miss me Maybe if he's alone a little longer He might think a little harder about what we had Yeah, I want him back before I go Just a beautiful song from the pen of Jimmy Yeary and the lips of Cameron Dubois. And Cameron, if folks want to stay plugged into everything you're doing here, check out your tour dates, download music and so forth, where can they go to do that? Oh, you can go to, uh, you can find all of my social media is, uh, you can find it at CameronDubois.com. 
and it's C-A-M-E-R-O-N. And last name is D-U-B-O-I-S. It's French, so it's a little tricky, so I always spell it out for people. But it's CameronDubois.com. And you can also find, I always post my tour dates on there. You can find all my videos, my links to my, my music as far as streaming on Apple Music and Spotify. I also have a Facebook page, a Cameron Dubois. Uh, it's a music page, and I also post all my dates on there as well as everything I'm doing, as well as my Instagram, Cameron Dubois, at Cameron Dubois. So uh, Twitter, um, I'm on it all. Uh, so, yes, please. Stay plugged in. And I should also mention there's a great lyric video that, that you just dropped for, for Let Me Miss Him as well. Uh, yeah, so cool story about uh, that video. I was songwriting up in um, – South Carolina, I'm not, excuse me, North Carolina. And the weather was absolutely beautiful. I mean, they, they, they told me like, cause I went up there and they're like, you're not going to, you know, the weather has been terrible. It's been cold. It's been freezing. And when I showed up there, it was like in the sixties and it was sunny and absolutely beautiful. It wasn't rainy and cloudy. And um, where I was staying was the Trinity, excuse me, the Treehouse of serenity. And great place if you can check it out they got the coolest little uh setups they got like a harry potter themed and a hogwarts theme but i ended up staying in their farmhouse and um the people that were you know who who own it um they you know knew i was coming up there caroline and mike so they you know kind of took me out to show me the city and then at the end of the day caroline took me up to the very top of the mountain to uh, where it basically had almost a 360 view of the North Carolina mountains in Asheville. And it was, I tell you, it was such a sight to see. It was so beautiful. And I was like, I've got to film. If we're going to do a lyric video, I got to film some of the footage here because you just can't beat it. And so I ended up just with my little, I had a little Osmo Mobile handheld that you put your iPhone on. And I literally used that and a tripod when I was staying in the tree house, um, which was the farmhouse, um, and just videoed it and directed it myself. And I sent it over to my friend Jennifer McGill, who was doing the lyric video. She was editing all the all of it out and, and putting the lyrics up. So it ended up turning out to be a lot cooler than I was expecting. Well, it, it turned out great, and I hope everybody will go check it out because that's a great song and a great video. And I tell you what, if you're in the Alabama area, in or near, go check out that tour section of Cameron's website. Take note of all those upcoming shows and get out there for a good time. Cameron, thank you so much for taking the time to join us here on Fast Line Fast Track, and I hope you come back and join us anytime you've got new music to share. You're always welcome Absolutely. to come back. Yeah, I'd love to. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. This was this has been great, and I and I appreciate you asking me to come out and and, and promote my music. And uh, it's I'd love to come back when once I get some of these new ones out. <laughs> And we want to thank you for joining us this week. And we want to send a special shout out to our musical sponsor, the Ernest Tubb Record Shop, 417 Broadway in the heart of downtown Nashville, Tennessee. It's springtime on Lower Broadway and the perfect time to take in some tunes at one of the nearby establishments like Robert's Western World, then drop on in to buy some new tunes at the Ernest Tubb Record Shop. They got a great selection of vinyl, CDs, and merchandise. And if they don't have it, I know they'll find it for you. So stop by and say hi and tell them you heard it on Fast Line Fast Track. And some big news for 
from Fastline. Just this week, the new Fastline.com website launched. If you're in the market for any type of farm equipment or heavy construction equipment, head on over to Fastline.com and check out the equipment locator with the revamped price comparison tool featuring the Iron Average powered by Iron Solutions. Again, that's Fastline.com. And while you're on the website, make sure you sign up for the print catalog for your state or region. It's still being delivered directly to your door, and it's still a favorite resource of farmers and ranchers across our great country. And don't forget to subscribe to the Fastline Fast Track podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Deezer, Audible, and Radio.com. And hit us up on all those socials, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Well, it's time for us to get on out of here. So until next time, it's Brent Adams saying y'all come back and bring along a friend. You've been listening to Fastline Fast Track, presented by Fastline Media Group. To learn more about Fastline's customer-focused marketing solutions, visit FastlineMediaGroup.com and check out our brand websites, Fastline.com, BigAg.com, and PinkTractor.com. If you have topic suggestions for future podcasts, drop us a line at Brent.Adams at Fastline.com.